Well, we'll get started then with uh, probably one or two more stragglers rolling in with fair traffic. But um, before we do, uh, this is our last week in the book of Judges. Next week we will start Daniel, which is slightly different genre, a little bit similar to Judges. But before we do that uh, pivot, I want to give you guys like a book recommendation for Old Testament uh, studies. So this is a book called Dominion and Dynasty. It's not a commentary on like any one book of the Old Testament, but it kind of gives an overview summary of like the whole Hebrew Bible. How do we make sense of it as Christians? And so if you're ever looking for like good resources or things like that, this uh, is a series by D.A. Carson and it has a bunch of different theological books, but this one is particularly about how do we make sense of the Hebrew Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So just a recommendation for you guys to start. I've been using this a little bit for Judges and a little bit for, for Daniel, and I found it a really helpful book. So with that being said, um, let's go ahead and open up. Uh, this week we'll be in two different texts. We'll be in Deuteronomy 17 to start, and then I'll, so I'll read that, and then we'll read uh, just one verse out of Judges, a very uh, famous verse that you're all familiar with at this point. Um, Deuteronomy 17, and then if you want to be, it's right at the end of Judges, Judges 21, 25. So I'm going to read out of Deuteronomy 17 first in verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of his, of this, in a book, the copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them. And his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And then if you uh, flip over to Judges 21, 25, this is just a representation uh, but this verse repeats over and over again in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as we kind of take our final week in the book of Judges and we, uh, let's say, back up and go, okay, what is the purpose of the book of Judges? What purpose is this serving? That's the question we've been asking kind of the whole time we've been studying, not just this is an interesting story. Samson's an interesting character. Gideon has some peculiarities. You know, Deborah is, is a wonderful... We've been looking at those stories, but asking the, the big question, what is the, the purpose of the book? What purpose does it serve? And I think the author of Judges has, has this repeating verse, in those days there's no king, as, as kind of a commentary on, uh, on what a true king would look like, essentially a solution to Israel's problem, right? The problem in Judges is that Israel is unfaithful, apostate, going astray, not obeying God's laws, not keeping them. And uh, the, the commentator of Judges, the, they're called the former prophets, the writers of these books, 
this author essentially comments, uh, there's no king, this is the problem. If there was a king, according to Deuteronomy, then maybe, just maybe, this wouldn't be such a problem. So if you're asking the question, uh, or let's say a main idea for this week uh, as we kind of conclude, the question is this, who is the king? Who is the king? And so uh, in Judges, the, the picture gets painted that they start off with Joshua as their leader. And remember the first thing that happens in the book of Judges is Joshua passes away and leadership passes off not to any leader anymore, but to the tribe of Judah to essentially spearhead the rest of the operation in conquering Canaan. And these are like the opening chapters in the book of Judges. And it's essentially the looming catastrophe at the end of Joshua is the promised land isn't fully settled. Another generation needs to complete this job. But Joshua is not at the helm anymore. And as soon as Joshua steps out of the helm, within a couple of generations, they stop settling the land. They essentially make peace with the Canaanite peoples. And they take on all this sin, all this apostasy. And in this is when the narrator in Judges essentially comments, there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. But in those days, God raised up judges to save them from their sin. And so God pursues Israel, is saving them. And then you have this like middle meaty section, which is basically from chapter 3 all the way through till chapter 16, uh, concluding with Samson, of this is how, uh, like with, with cool stories and details, how God actually went about saving Israel. It's not that God, you know, supernaturally shows up in their midst every single time. Sometimes it's through the ordinary graces of Shamgar. Sometimes it's through the ordinary graces of Gideon. Uh, sometimes it's through supernatural things, like uh, the birth of Samson being announced before time, uh, before he's born, and then uh, Samson having supernatural strength and, and things like this. So, but, but the whole motif is the judges are not to be understood by us as individual tribal leaders who are making a name for themselves. In some cases, they don't have necessarily pure motivations. But the commentary at the beginning, before the judges are raised up, is this is God's doing to save Israel uh, from their apostasy, right? That the judges are, let's say, a solution, albeit uh, a band-aid solution, right? If you're looking at the book, right, there's the peace that comes when the judge reigns, the judge perishes, and then the peace disappears and apostasy reigns again. And so we're left to imply by a myriad of examples, in fact, more examples than we probably care to, to look at, um, and if you just look back at all the, all the time we've studied together in Judges, you'll, you'll note almost every story, every text has that same pattern. It's rescued by the judge, faithful during the time of the judge. That kind of disintegrates later, but faithful during the time of the judge, rest during the time of the judge, and then the judge passes away, and the inevitable thing is Israel goes back to their former apostasy. And then the whole, let's say, concluding appendix of the book of Judges is, well, where does this apostasy lead? Israel is just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel is just as wicked as any of the people around them. There's nothing different between Israel and the other nations. And the commentary is, okay, how is Israel in this condition? Well, there is no king in Israel. That's why everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And this is not something that the author of Judges is making up. Moses actually tells us this ahead of time in Deuteronomy. He uh, threw, as the first text that we read in Deuteronomy 17, Moses says, um, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, the natural thing to do, the natural next thing to do would be to say, we must have a king over us. This is not a perversion of the Israelites. This is actually a natural next step. Now you might be thinking, well, in 1 Samuel, you know, it kind of seems that when Israel is appointing a king, it's because they're rejecting God's leadership over them. Uh, if we were going through 1 Samuel, we'd look at those texts and say, well, it's not quite the same. It's actually that Israel is putting a king that's after their own heart, not a king that God institutes, not a king according to this Deuteronomy 17 model. 
But God says in Deuteronomy 17 through Moses that a king is a fitting next step for an established people. Not only do you go in to conquest the nation, not only do you drive back the Canaanites, but also you should institute a king over you. And this king is going to be marked uh, in a certain way. He's not going to exploit you. He's not going to be a foreigner. He's not going to be someone who abuses the people of Israel. He's going to protect them and keep them. He's not going to make himself rich. And what should mark this king, verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it should be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes in doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. Right? This is Israel's problem. It's not that they don't know the law. They don't have God's law through Moses. Uh, they have Levites who can approve the law. They have Levites who can teach them the law. They know enough to kind of keep some semblance to the sacrificial system. Um, the problem isn't that. The problem is they're quick to forget what they know and let it, let's say, collect dust on a shelf and act in their life in a way that's different from what they've been taught according to the law of God. So uh, what's the solution? Well, Moses says the king shouldn't just copy down the law, which in itself would be an intensive task, right? If you think about how many books that is to hand copy. I don't know if you've ever thought about trying to hand copy the first five books of scripture. That would be a lot of time, right? So the king, this is the first thing he's supposed to do. Hand write it out. That'll get it into you some way. And the second thing is, and he's supposed to regularly revisit it for the purpose of not forgetting it and turning aside to the right or to the left. So the king is, let's say, a pace setter for the people of Israel, right? If you're, if you're running a race, one of the things that they do for marathoners is they have someone who sets the pace out in front of everyone else. And this person keeps the cadence, keeps the pace so that everyone who's competing knows generally what the standard is, whether they're ahead or behind of the set standard. The king is supposed to be that for the holiness and the purity of Israel. He's supposed to set the pace for the people. He's supposed to keep them away from swaying away. And how he does this is he has God's law in his heart. So then who is this king supposed to be? Well, in Judges, every single judge who's been lifted up in some way falls short of the standard, right? Some of them are amazing military leaders, like this king is supposed to be to protect Israel. Not so great on the moral front, right? This is kind of the common motif. Some of them are great on the moral front, but they don't, uh, they don't have, let's say, a noteworthy long ministry, right? Othniel comes to mind as the, one of the first judges he comes in. He's about as morally uh, unassailable as you can get in judges. He, there's nothing, let's say, negative said about him. But the problem with Othniel is he doesn't finish the conquest. He doesn't lead the people faithfully. And after he dies, peace goes away from the people, right? So then it can't be this king because this king should be established after the people fully possess the land, right? So this is when the kings be instituted. And actually, much of the rest of Scripture is trying to work out, when I say Scripture, I'm talking about the Hebrew Old Testament, trying to work out, okay, well, if the king is supposed to reign over the land when the lands have been established, who is this king, right? Because, uh, you know, you have Saul at first and he loses to the Philistines in battle. Actually, that's how he perishes. Uh, he's, he's not able to actually drive out the Philistines. You have David who finally does it. Uh, and then after David, his successors, uh, Solomon and then Solomon's son, uh, and then all of the other kings fall short of, of these standards, right? Even David departs from meditating on the law and, and commits uh, a, a wicked sin with Bathsheba and then another wicked sin by essentially counting his riches in the kingdom, which is a violation here of the Deuteronomy command, right? That's the sin of David. It's actually considered in Chronicles the bigger sin of the two between the Bathsheba and the the Bathsheba sin and then counting his kingdom, the kingdom is actually like called the sin of David in the book of Chronicles. So he's, he's violating these statutes that he was supposed to uphold. 
So then the, the whole question that the whole book of Judges is pregnant with is who's the king supposed to be? Um, and I think that's the question, you know, that by the time you get to the New Testament, remember Matthew opens up with this genealogical lineage of a, a, a genealogy with David, where Jesus is, let's say, the termination point of the genealogy. And now it's going to tell you about Jesus, what he's like. Uh, oh, he's, he's uh, a leader. He knows God's law. He can quote it from memory. He can actually interpret it better than the best teachers of the time. And he doesn't turn away from it. He, he keeps it even in the face of uh, insane temptation with the devil. He keeps the law. He follows it. He obeys it. And he uh, is put on trial unjustly. And then uh, when Pilate essentially says, okay, well, where's your kingdom? Uh, this kingdom that you're coming to establish. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, then I could just call my angels down right now and establish it. But I must go first to uh, the cross, deal with sin, and then uh, I will come back and essentially establish this kingdom. So this is uh, Jesus's, let's say, fulfillment of these expectations, right? The, the kingdom that Jesus provides in the New Testament is not one that is uh, temporary. It's one that he says is an everlasting kingdom, a domain that will not end. So this is one of the ways in which scripture is expecting us to understand the Old Testament expectations, right? If you're uh, a Christian in, in Western civilization and you're hearing Jesus talking about his kingdom and what it's supposed to be like, that sounds, you know, not too radical, not too crazy, unless you have the background of all the other kings who've come before him who've missed the mark, fallen short, and deviated from the path. And then, but if you pay attention to what scripture says, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is a kingdom exactly in line with the Deuteronomy kind of king and the kingdom that Israel needs, a kingdom that doesn't fail, that is everlasting, that is kind of one and in right relationship with uh, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So I think Judges is kind of answering this question by saying, who is the king? The king is uh, still waiting. We're still waiting for this king, right? That's, that's kind of how Judges ends. But, you know, we don't have to end there because we don't just have Judges. We have, you know, the rest of Scripture to inform us that Jesus actually is the one who fulfills that pattern. Now, uh, just a, a quote to let you know I'm not just, you know, saying, reading Jesus back into the Old Testament. Uh, one of the commentators on Judges uh, says it this way. He says, um, you, when, you're, when you're looking at Old Testament scripture, you need to give a theocentric exposition of this chunk of Old Testament narrative. We must see the beauty of Yahweh, our God, here. If we do, then we can be sure we have begun to handle scripture rightly. And part of the beauty is seeing, let's say, the full revelation of God. Judges ends kind of on a hopeless note, right? There's no king. What are we to do? Kind of ends on this note of ominous despair, um, but if you're reading Judges, this note of ominous despair is actually a good thing because uh, it's, it's reminding you of a time in Israel's history where the lack of a kingdom, the lack of a king was particularly painful and particularly felt. Now, there's other examples in Israel's history of bad kings and things like that. But Judges is, is focusing the story on what it's like to have no king or no permanent king. How, how bad can it get, right? And so I think uh, it's, it's ending on, let's say, a negative note. That's kind of the whole motif of Judges. Uh, big picture story, but I think it's, it's answering the question in one kind of way. Uh, whoever the king is, he needs to not be like these other judges. Whoever the king is, he needs to be like the kind of king that's been set out beforehand uh, in Deuteronomy 17. And so then uh, there's probably uh, one uh, other piece worth covering in the book of Judges, uh, which is the, the question, okay, as Christians, how is Judges, let's say, beneficial to us? Let's say, you know, you're you're talking to a new believer, you're, uh, let's say, studying scripture with someone, you're just opening your Bible and reading it for yourself, you know, how do you get to, let's say, a message of judges that makes sense and actually edifies you as a believer? Well, uh, part of that question is understanding that uh, the same God who's working in judges 
uh, is the same God, same yesterday, today, and forever. So he works in the same kinds of ways, meaning he does sometimes miraculous interventions in the lives of people to orchestrate events in a way that they can say that there's no way I could explain this aside from God having done it. Uh, same way that he works uh, then, he works today. Uh, same way uh, by means of uh, obedience to the law is a way that he worked then and he works today. That obedience to the law is something that uh, he demands and requires. And it's not something that's legalistic. If, if you're obedient to God's law, it's actually a way to demonstrate love toward God. So a Christian can learn that, well, judges is actually exhorting us to be faithful and obedient. And I think one of the other pieces that we can learn from judges, and this is, let's say, a big picture idea, is that part of uh, our spiritual warfare in this world is an external battle against, let's say, the enemies of God that are out there and an internal battle against the enemies of God that kind of rage within us, right? So you have the external fight in Judges, which is conquering the promised land. Uh, this is a big problem because they don't do that. This is a big loss in Judges. But the other big loss is that they actually don't themselves maintain fidelity to God's law. So there's two losses. The, the external fight is lost and the internal, let's say, purity is lost. And both of those serve as examples to us. Now, that's not to say that we are Israel. But I think, you know, when you get to, for example, Paul in Galatians, Galatians 3, Paul warns the church. He says, don't believe any other gospel. Don't add to the gospel. Don't subtract from it. This is the gospel. And while we might, before that moment, not have been tempted to distort the gospel, by him warning the Galatian church, we ourselves are reminded, oh, we should not add to the gospel. We should not. So their example of misstepping and being corrected is a good, I think, reminder to us as we daily live out our lives not to add or take away from God's gospel. In the same way here, when the, when the people of uh, Israel fail to conquest the promised land, and then they fail to keep themselves pure, it reminds us as Christians, oh, we shouldn't be losing the external fight against the world, against the powers of darkness, but we also should keep a careful watch on the internal church, the internal man, to, not, uh, to finish well. You know, Gideon's story is he starts well, doesn't finish well. Uh, there, there's so many lessons to be learned as a Christian kind of throughout this book. Just by, just by understanding that negative examples are sometimes actually positive examples for us. They can serve mightily to give us encouragement and to give us commentary on what it's like to, uh, to sidestep or to obey what God says. What does faithfulness really look like? So with that, uh, we can move into some discussion, kind of just taking a big picture overview of the book. Um, and I hope that our study in this book has been hopefully edifying to you. Um, and I know it certainly was for me. So even for selfish reasons, I'm glad we did it. So let me close in a word of prayer real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you particularly for um, your revelation and narrative, your revelation uh, of Israel and history past. Not only does it uh, give us wonderful uh, stories to recount to our children uh, and even stories that will stay in our minds easily, um, but also it, it gives us wonderful teaching, a wonderful doctrine, a wonderful commentary about who you are and what you are like. And Lord, I pray that uh, in, in, the, in the same way that uh, the king uh, is not supposed to depart from the law, Lord, would we follow the example of, of the king, not to depart from the law, to meditate on it, to chew on it, to remind ourselves of it, to dwell in the teachings of the law. Uh, would you give us grace to do that, Lord, knowing that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to go astray, um, and just help us as we uh, try to work this thing out in our lives uh, so that we would finish well and so we would uh, maintain faithfulness to you and to your, uh, to your law. We pray this all in your name. Amen.